Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 14th, 2022, Valentine's Day, of course. Not a lot of love on the front pages of newspapers today, unfortunately. The Ukraine crisis dominates as our global disorder compounds itself. Um, seems as if war or some sort of war is imminent. Um, Russian attack on the Ukraine, according to the Wall Street Journal, the West is stepping up its diplomatic efforts. One wonders how effective those diplomatic efforts of the West are and how united they are. Um, according to the Financial Times, the Putin is leaving the West guessing as the Ukraine crisis intensifies. Certainly, Putin has played his hand as he tends to do internationally. Brilliant. No one really has any idea of what he's up to. Um uh, meanwhile, he uses, uh, according to the Financial Times, his foreign minister to stress a way forward for diplomacy. So we're going backwards and forwards between diplomacy and war. Everyone's fearful of war. No one's quite sure exactly what he wants. Uh, Gideon Rackman, the foreign policy analyst in the Financial Times, who's been on the show, uh, talks about a global fight for the Ukraine narrative. It is, of course, a challenge of telling the story. What exactly is happening here and what does each side want? This global disorder has been a feature on our show um, recently. I had the geostrategic uh, energy analyst, Daniel Jurgen, iconic figure, is one of the, the, the uh, Pulitzer Prize for his work. Uh, talking about the, the new map in the world for energy and war. Uh, Jürgen believes that the Ukrainian crisis is intimately bound up also in the Taiwanese crisis and in the uh, increasing geostrategic sensitivity of the South China Sea. Uh, others who believe in this idea of a new global disorder place other geographies centrally. My guest today is the author of an interesting new book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Uh, his name is Jason Pack, and, and Jason seems to place Libya, if not literally, but symbolically at the heart of this new uh, disorder. Jason is talking to us from New Jersey today. Uh, Jason, why is Libya exhibit number one when it comes to our new global enduring disorder, the uh, the title of your book, uh, which is manifesting itself, for example, today in the Ukraine, but might also do in Yemen and other hotspots around the world. Well, that's a good way to frame it. It's not that Libya is the geostrategically most important chess square on the board. I would argue that Ukraine is, but rather that Libya is the first place in which all of the features of our post-Cold War order first came into being. And excuse me, I mean, all of the features of our post-Cold -post War order, which I term the enduring disorder, first came into being. Um, in previous conflict zones like Iraq or Afghanistan, 
American hegemony and the American ability to coordinate our allies, even if we were doing so behind a bad policy, was the order of the day. It was really with Obama and the Arab Spring that we see these new features of a non-Cold War or post-Cold War system. Failed European leadership, inability to coordinate amongst the allies, and then the negative feedback loops of issues like migration and jihadis being exported, then causing more global conflict and a rise of neo-populist leaders who then prefer an unordered world because that makes them more marketable. And those features all first showed themselves in Libya. So I consider it the first petri, petri dish of the enduring disorder. You had a foreign policy piece also um, uh, suggesting that the Libyan chaos is a warning uh, to the world, 10 years after Gaddafi's death, uh, you call Libya a harbinger. Um, tell me about the history of Libya over the last 10 years. Why is it a harbinger? Well, there was a huge amount of optimism that people forget now when they are thinking about the flow of Libyan history over these last 10 years. It is a oil wealthy country without a major sectarian divide. And there was a lot but of- it, God, but, but let's be clear about Libya, um, uh, Jason. It, it, it is a post-colonial state. It got carved out of the desert by uh, the colonial power. So there's nothing natural about a Libyan state or a Libyan country, is there? Oh, by no means. It was the uh, just the last remaining provinces of Ottoman North Africa. That's the only reason that it was uh, taken by the Italians uh, in 1911. And, and yes, it's, it's, it's an artificial entity. And even worse than that, unlike other artificial entities, it never had state building processes, right? Because Qaddafi believed in a kind of statelessness and as a desert libertarian, as we used to love to call him when I lived in Libya in his regime, um, he didn't try to centralize the power that normal oil states, as artificial as they might be, do in bureaucratic institutions. But back to your question about the last 10 years of Libyan history. Well, actually, before we get to that, let's talk briefly about, uh, uh, sorry, let's talk about Gaddafi. Um, he became a, a well-known figure, almost like a, a celebrity despot um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. How did he achieve that? Did he just spend money on marketing? Because he was a minor figure, but he was also a household name. Well, like uh, the geniuses of Trump and Boris, he got a lot of what we would have to term free advertising because the more lavish the tent and the uh, crazier the outfit, the more you get free advertising in the international media. He understood this in many, many ways. And I think a key thing that people misunderstand about Qaddafi is that he wasn't a regular strongman dictator. And it's, it's incorrect to compare him to, say, uh, Assad the father or Saddam Hussein. They were strongmen who repressed their enemies and had no consistent ideology. Despite being an Arab nationalist, um, Assad the father was very happy to work with Iran against Iraq. That's not Qaddafi. Qaddafi believed in a set of economic and uh, ideological principles, and he followed them even when it hurt him. So, for example, his supporting of the IRA and the Sandinistas 
caused a huge backlash that that uh, led to various sanctions and didn't allow him to get the investments that he needed into his oil sector. That was not benefiting. So interesting that he was a a principal despot in contrast with the unprincipled despots in Syria or in Iraq. Oh, correct. He was a megalomaniac in the Stalin and Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong mentally ill variety. And that kind of uh, megalomaniac narcissist frequently believes his own pronouncements. And I think it's really important to see the difference between that and the shrewd power calculators of someone like Saddam or Assad, who, yeah, let's kill these enemies. Yeah, to stand I mean, I don't want to get into a big debate. I, I agree with you on Assad. I'm, I'm less certain on Saddam, otherwise he'd still probably be around, whereas the Assads are still ruling Syria. But anyway, um, so, okay, so eventually uh, Gaddafi gets, what, dragged out? Um, in wh wh When did he, when was he overthrown? Well, it was on February 15th, 2011, so exactly... 11 years ago tomorrow, that he used the old rule book of firing into a crowd of protesters in Benghazi. And that had worked in the past, like in Hama in 1982, but it doesn't work in the internet age where those uh, memes go viral. And then the Arab Spring in Libya began, and it would have been crushed due to the superior military might of the Qaddafian regime, except that for a range of reasons, he had pissed off a lot of countries around him. So they were willing to work with the French and the British who initiated a no-fly zone, the first in history that the Arab League had approved to be used against an Arab state. And that supported the rebels and allowed them to take Tripoli in August and then to capture Gaddafi in a ditch around Sirte, his hometown, on October 20th, 2011. And to come back full circle, there was a lot of hope. I was someone who, having lived in Libya and, and helped Western businesses uh, operate there, I had a lot of hope when Qaddafi was uh, overthrown. But the problem was that the West was incoherent in its coordination about who needed to lead the reconstruction or how a Libya fits into the international community. And this was not for the first or the last time. So now, Libya, when you look at the the headlines of Libya today, I did a little bit of a search on um, on Reuters. We have stuff about the UN advisor, UN again being a toothless international organization, telling Libya it must preserve calm. That sounds like uh, someone screaming in a theater, don't leave, don't leave. Um, uh, Al Jazeera reports on militia forces rallying as the political crisis deepens. And we have the rise of new political leaders, most of which uh, I think our audience won't have heard of, one called Bashaga. What is the current situation then, Jason, in, in, in Libya? Is it just sort of the, the fragmentation of, a, of an already weak state that no one's really in power, anarchy, chaos, uh, a kind of a, 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 a minuscule version of our, our new global enduring disorder? I think that's right. Um... Yes, there are two prime ministers at present, but this is not chaos in the way that you might understand it. And, and if we jump back to the causation here, in the past, American hegemony made its errors, but you knew a decision was taken either in Foggy Bottom or the Pentagon, and our allies like Britain helped us implement it, 
or our allies like the French and the Germans sat on the sidelines. This isn't what played out in Libya post-2011. The Italians pulled in one direction, the French in the other, the Americans mostly sat out. And after my friend, Ambassador Chris Stevens, was killed in Benghazi on September 12th, 2012, it became a partisan issue where Republicans and Democrats used it as a battering ram rather than having a coherent policy towards Libya. And this isn't that, the first or the last. I mean, go back to Suez. You saw great divisions between Western powers. This is not particularly original. What about Hillary's involvement? Uh, she, uh, Libya got turned into a sort of a, a, a weird meme by critics of Hit Hillary. Here we have a piece from the New York Times with the headline, Hillary Clinton, smart power and a dictator's fall. The president was wary. The secretary of state was persuasive. But the ouster of Colonel Muhammad, uh, Muhammad al-Gaddafi left Libya a failed state and a terrorist haven. How much was Hillary responsible for this? Absolutely not at all. And I think that uh, you're, you're, you're pointing to the media narrative that Hillary, Samantha Power and Susan Rice were more about using the responsibility to protect and Obama was more wary to get involved. Yeah, that's true. But Hillary had no personal responsibility for any uh, developments, either in the reconstruction phase or certainly not in, uh, you know, Ambassador Stevens's decision to travel on uh, September 10th, 11th to Benghazi. And I'm just going to really strongly disagree with your reference there about the Suez crisis. Suez was so meaningful because it was an example of Anthony Eden not getting the temperature and the mood music and not consulting his American allies. Uh, that's just not the way that policy worked in the Cold War. And the reason that Britain's stature was so diminished is they had gone outside the, the, the normal playbook whereby post-World War II, Britain and America worked as an alliance abroad. Okay, that I, I take your point, the French, uh, the French as well. So what we saw in Suez was a, a shifting in the international order from a, 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 a Franco-British colonial world to a US-based world. And it was quite dramatic. Obviously, Israel is also involved in this. Uh, so what you're saying is we're going through a similarly structural shift, Jason. We are talking um, with, uh, with Jason Pack, the author of Libya and the enduring um, it disorder, which seems to reflect on the world. Uh, Libya is a, uh, not Libya, Jason is a wise man. He sees Libya as the prism with which we can see uh, the chaos of today's international politics of Ukraine, of the South China Sea, of Iraq, of Yemen, of so many other global hotspots. I'm going to take a break, Jason, now, and then I want to get away from uh, Libya a little bit and talk about the broader lessons, what we can learn from Libya and how we're supposed to move forward in this global enduring disorder, how we're supposed to fix it. So we'll be back, everyone, in about 60 seconds. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using 
Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Jason Pack, the author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, uh, a way of looking at uh, the post-Cold War world through the prism of Libya. Um, in the first half, Jason, we talked about the difference between the Suez Crisis, which resulted in the, the baton being shifted, handed over from the French and the British to the Americans in terms of running the international system, to a world now, I think, in which the baton has been dropped. No one picked it up. Is that exactly? Fair? That's it. So if I could jump in, that's why I consider us as being in an interregnum of order. And although this isn't an academic book, I do critique the realist IR school who believes that a balance of power happens intrinsically, you know? So as British power decreases, American power increases, or as the Germans made a competition, then there was a rebalancing on the European continent. Well, that's not the way that human history works. Human history is not governed by laws of physics. There have been many interregnums in order. We think of the Middle Ages as one, but uh, there were you know, others in uh, you know, the early Renaissance period. We had various interregnums in international order. And I think we're entering into such a period. And this also has to do with the democratization of Capital, media, the unregulated nature of cyberspace is something that I devote a chapter to. And then the way in which Fortune 500 companies are far less regulated than they have ever been. And frequently, they don't follow the dictates of the government that they claim that they're headquartered in. I mean, look at Exxon and Deutsche Bank's interactions. Right. I think this was one of the more interesting parts of your book. I mean, the cyber stuff, the cyberspace stuff, Jason, everyone's writing about. But we've we've done a number of shows on um, the unregulated nature of uh, the international economy. We recently did one with Casey Michel. Uh, on uh, on on dirty money, we've done other shows with Caroline Belton, for example, who's being sued now by the Putin people in London. Um, you seem to, and, and I think this is really interesting. I mean, most people aren't familiar with this. You make again Libya a kind of a, a symptom, a symbol, a cause and effect of the world's dirty money system. How and why? 
Well, you're right that that other people are writing about unregulated cyberspace because they have experiences there. I had an experience being the executive director of the U.S. Libya Business Association, and I assumed that my Fortune 500 member companies would want to be making more business with Libya and promoting their interests or promoting U.S. interests towards Libya. And then when I was on my K Street office, I realized it was not that simple. That in fact, many CEOs don't want to grow the bottom line, not even their quarterly earnings report, because they're governed by incumbent psychology. And that's, hey, I'm Facebook, for example, I'm top dog. We don't care about making a billion more or less next month. We need to just prevent there from being new challengers. So I experienced that in the way that Fortune 500 companies deal with Libya. Now, you mentioned about dirty money and hot money. I would another, argue another of the people we've had on the show is is Tom Burgess, uh, who, who yes. wrote Kleptopia, Kleptopia. As I said, Caroline uh, Belton, a very brave journalist, and and and, and uh, uh, Casey Michelle. This is, I think, a, an incredibly important subject that not so, enough people understand. I, I cite Tom Burgess's work a lot in in my chapter four about hot money, and the reason why Libya is ground zero here is that. I would say the Libyans have written the mismanners guide to excruciatingly correct kleptocracy. They're far more advanced than, you know, regular sub-Saharan African chop off your hands and steal the blood diamonds people. But I would argue they're more integrated into the global financial system than, say, Russia. We can sanction Russia in various ways. It's really impossible to sanction the ways in which Libyan money operates in the city of London or in the Cayman Islands or Panama. And this is because the Libyans have perfected a term that I coined semi-sovereign institutions. And that's having parts of the Libyan state masquerade as private parastatal companies. Yes, the Russians and Ukrainians do this. We all know about Gazprom, Rusneft, Surrogate Nifty Gas. But in Libya, the way in which these Orwellian entities like the Office for Development of Administrative Centers operate hacks global capitalism. It's infinitely more sophisticated than the ways in which, say, Gazprom or Rusneft manipulates global capitalism. So you're suggesting that the, the global economy is being looted by unregulated money, by dirty money, much of it probably controlled by Putin. But some people might say, well, there's nothing really new about that. I had uh, William Dalrymple on the show, for example, a brilliant um, Anglo-Indian historian, the author of the best-selling book, Anarchy, uh, about the East India Company. And he, he explains that the British, through uh, a capitalist entity called the East India Company, a joint stock company, essentially looted India. So what's the difference between... British behavior in India, or for that matter, in North Africa or the Middle East, or the French behavior or the Belgian behavior, this intrinsic looting and disorder. Uh, what's the difference between that and today's what you call enduring disorder? It seems to be the same basic idea, people stealing money and uh, resources. No, I think it's fundamentally different. So the East India Company was a capitalist profit-making entity it tried to increase its profit. Even parts of British empire after 1857, when India was run no longer by the company, but by the British government, were about making a profit. I'm saying in our new era, 
even corporations, let alone the US government, are not trying to maximize profits. It's about collective action failure. And in the old days, particularly when you know there were 40 families in England and you know everyone essentially were blues uh, at Cambridge on their rugby 15, who then were in the Sudan political service, they coordinated well together. Now, well, we're not nostalgic. We should, but my point, Jason, is we shouldn't be nostalgic for that. I mean, we had, uh, again, uh, Jeffrey Wheatcroft on, on the show. He has a, a really important new book out, Churchill's Shadow, which is a very dark, critical view of Churchill. He acknowledges that Churchill was, in some respects, a great man, especially in 1939 and 40. But basically, you know, he was a racist. He's ran the, he, he essentially undermined the British relationship with um, uh, with America and sort of invented a, a false narrative about the Second World War. Some people might say, well, whether it's done through East India Company, Winston Churchill, this world disorder at least represents um, a, a newly distributed platform of power. There is still power. We just don't know it. So obviously... Churchill's gambling debts and some of his personal flaws uh, take away from the legacy of the man. But I think that we're in a different situation now. Power is much more diffuse. So I I'm a believer in hegemony. Y yes, Dick Cheney, horrible guy and very, very corrupt. But it's kind of okay when it's hegemonic corruption and it's not okay when it's hold on, hold on. Well, let's let's come back on this one. Uh, sure. You, you, I'm quoting you. you. Say, I'm a believer in hegemony. What does that mean? You mean you like the old American world of Dick Cheney and the catastrophe in Iraq, uh, or, or, or uh, uh, Robert Draper? We've had on this show. He's still described the brilliant New York Times journalist. He describes the Iraq War as the worst disaster, the worst foreign policy disaster. In American history, so what's and good I agree with hegemony? that. Why should we be in any way nostalgic for that? Well, I can explain that easily. And yes, this is a controversial position, particularly among the center left where I'm situated. It's that you don't sound I, very center left. Believe oh no, American I'm a Habesian, and and a Habesian needs to understand that you're, you're a what. A believer in Hobbes, right? Oh, so Thomas Hobbes, oh, yes. We need to have a Leviathan. The problem was not having a Leviathan, it was that Cheney was making the wrong decisions. And o Obama and Trump are part of a long trajectory of decline. And we, we certainly have this with Biden, that we're not willing to lead and coordinate amongst the allies. And this is extremely problematic because there is no, to my mind, substitute for a Western bloc ordering uh, the world, how can we fix climate change and tax havens? Things that I think are the most pressing crises. Well, it turns out we can't because without a Western bloc imposing penalties, the UN is as toothless as you've pointed out. So it's it's not a question so much of left-right because it's- Although you, you, know, you, you positioned yourself on the center-left. I'm not quite sure uh, whether most people would describe Hobbes as part of the center-left, but that's another- discussion. What's well, leftist about Hobbes? Le leftist about Hobbes? And you said you're, the you're on the about the state. I want to have, as a, as I have higher thinker. taxes and um, public health care, Andrew, and I certainly want to have more regulation. And I believe in a Habesian state, which has 
the powers, particularly a hegemonic power among the Western bloc to sort out these key issues like, for example, climate change. And the right traditionally in America wants a smaller state, right? So we need to reclaim the real roots of what we're supposed to believe as Democrats in this country, which is a strong state able to not only order America, but play our role in the world rather than letting some Libyan semi-sovereign institutions or a thug like Putin uh, corrupt not only money, but threaten our allies. So there is an alternative system coming into place, for better or worse. We did a show with uh, Dorit Giva, the Buddha, the Central European University-based sociologist on Viktor Orban and this this new world of of, of strong men. We had uh, Ruth Giet on on the show recently. Uh, we met actually it was more than a year ago. Ruth Ben Giet uh, written a very interesting book about strong men, whether they're Trump uh, or, uh, or, or or Orban um, or, uh, or or Putin. Um, isn't that an alternative world? I mean, isn't the world that's coming into being more like a 19th century world? When I was reading your book and thinking about your ideas, it occurred to me that what they might be, and I'm not necessarily a great fan of theirs, but what they may be trying to create is the concert of Europe, which controlled matters in the world and throughout the 19th century as a reaction to the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars and actually avoided serious war for over a hundred years. So is this necessarily a bad thing? I would love to see a new concert of Europe and I'm a huge remainer and a believer in the European Union. It is the best- yeah, but the concert of Europe had nothing to do with the EU. It had to do with conservative powers coordinating- Of course, of course. I mean, we can debate about Metternich, uh, but I'm saying in today's iteration, yes, international institutions and states pooling their sovereignty is absolutely needed. but. I would push back by saying that Brexit and Boris and Trump and Bolsonaro and Orban represent no order at all. The neo-populism that they peddle is post-policy. It uh, is just about staying in power. So they're very happy to exacerbate the very problems that bring them into power, like migration and terrorism. Trump claimed to build a wall, but the wall never actually addressed a real problem and it didn't fix any migration crisis. He wants the crisis to continue so that there's a public outcry so that he can have a crisis on the border to run for re-election on that issue. And that's the difference between a real hegemon, which say in the days of JFK or Eisenhower, we had enough bipartisanship that we could have a multi-administration bipartisan view of American hegemony. And today's petty domestic partisanship where we have no foreign policy that is shared between the parties and we don't even honor our treaty commitments to Ukraine. This is uh, a disgrace and that's why it is fundamentally different than any of these historical examples that you made and is more like an interregnum in order as existed in say the late Middle Ages. Well, maybe we deserve the late Middle Ages, the anarchy of the late Middle Ages. Um, we had Kehinde Andrews, the British author uh, on colonialism and racism. Um, the West has behaved so, I mean, I think Kehinde might argue, I, I don't want to put words into his mouth, he's not on the show, but he might argue, and 
men like him, thinkers like him, critics of Western colonialism and racism might argue, that we've had this global enduring disorder coming to us for three or four hundred years, given the way we've behaved. So shouldn't we be celebrating this? I mean, we've got the Chinese lurking, and I know you don't believe that the Chinese represent an alternative system. I don't necessarily agree with you on that. There's certainly um, the beginnings of a, of a more China-centric global system emerging. I, I don't know why we should be worrying so much about the crisis of the West. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, yes, it's very PC and very woke to say Western colonialism was so bad, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater and let's have uh, a non-Western order. And I would retort, I'm very happy to have an alternative order so long as it's an order. If the Chinese are willing to work with a consensus-based, rules-based system to address the primary challenges we have, climate change, tax havens, great. Um, I'm really happy to work with them. But we haven't seen that. They're not interested in ordering the world. Look at the way that they responded to the pandemic with lies and denials and willing to uh, benefit personally with their economy while not helping others. So uh, I'm all of a believer in a consensus-based system, and it, it's, it can't be a kind of Western colonial imposition. That won't work, and it didn't work then. But it does need to be a hegemonic system. Um, nature abhors a vacuum. And as we're moving towards more of this vacuum, uh, I worry for our children and grandchildren, not only when they're experiencing two and three centigrade uh, higher temperatures, but just who knows when you can't trust your bank to not be raided by a cyber attack because no one is policing e-commerce and you know Bitcoin futures go up and down by thousands of percent per day and you can't trust the Federal Reserve Bank to keep interest rates level. That's just not a world that I want to be living in because I don't think it will lead to great artistic creation and I don't think it will lead to human happiness. We require the stability of an ordered international system to produce our greatest achievements, be they in well, again, or uh, I'm not convinced of this. Um, you know, we could have had Dalrymple back on the show, and this is the kind of language that Churchill used to describe the East India Company. Anyway, um, this is a, a broader discussion, Jason. Uh, your book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, is intriguing, and it I know you studied for a while at Oxford. It, it reminded me of uh, Isaiah Berlin's essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox, in which he separates people into hedgehogs and foxes. The hedgehogs who view the world through the lens of one idea, including Plato, Lucretius, Pascal, Hegel, Dostoevsky, and then the foxes who, like Aristotle and Shakespeare and Montaigne, who saw it through many things. You're a you are the ultimate hedgehog. For you, all of world history begins and ends in Libya, doesn't it? Well, it's funny. I, I'm obviously flattered to be referenced in the same breath as Isaiah Berlin, but I thought you were going to say I'm a fox because... Um, so you see you yourself know, as a fox rather than a hedgehog? Oh, I mean, most certainly. I, I run three businesses. I used to work at a trade association. I do consultancy, but then I also do academic writing. I write about wine and backgammon. But, uh, you know, now I'm going to be having a podcast. Good, with Nigo, good, 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 good. So, yeah, so you are a, a hedgehog as well. Uh, no, you're a fox rather than a hedgehog. Finally, Jason, who do you think predicted this? The person who comes to mind most for me, who really understood the post-Cold War age, unfortunately died last year, John le Carré. 
he wrote about this in, in some detail, about this anarchy that was coming. Um, do you think, look, Carré got it right? Do you think it, it requires perhaps you're, you're critical of uh, political scientists, international relations scholars, the academic world? Do you think it required a, a novelist like Le Carré to get this world right? Yes, of course. I mean, novelists uh, see deeper because they see the psychological dimensions of things. And I would argue that my foxness, to use this term, is that I'm trying to inject, interject a psychology of decision makers. And I most certainly don't see Libya as being at the center of everything. It's just a microcosm. My same book could be written using Yemen or Ukraine. But just to show the principles that are at play. And in terms of people who got it right, it was those who understood that Putin and Russia would be disruptors. And that if we didn't bring them into a rules-based order... Sorry, I got it right. Who else got that right as Putin? I mean, it didn't require a genius to understand that Putin was a disruptor. I mean, everyone says that. Well, uh, unfortunately, many people said that China was going to be our biggest threat and that, uh, in fact, you know, because Russia has one-tenth the economy in terms of uh, GNP of the U.S., that it's, well, that it's not an issue. We need to stop using words like a threat and our biggest threat, whether it's China or Russia. Oh, who are you even talking about? The United States, the West? None of this makes any sense anymore, as you've laid out in the, endure, in the global enduring disorder. Sorry, I, in, I, I in, strongly disagree. Let's go back to Le Carre. Who else got it right, do you think? Who predicted this world? Uh, maybe Thomas Reed, who writes about active measures, in that he understood that this is a world of active measures, meaning covert political operations, and that we, meaning the West, uh, and the forces of order need to be defending and actively combating such attempts to disorder the world. And if you don't have us and them anymore, then I don't think that there's a reason to engage in any policymaking. And, and that the uh, academic distance teaches us nothing about trying to create a world in which we can tackle climate change and uh, make better policies that empower women and uh, solve the most pressing issues that face us. Well, that's good stuff, uh, Jason. A uh, very spirited defense of the idea of hegemony in his Libya and the global enduring disorder. There are no clear answers here, but Jason Pack is not shy to articulate his own views, both in the book and on this show. Uh, what else, Jason, in addition to your new book, should people be reading in our age of global disorder? I think I should be reading about psychology because as order dissipates, it's the whims of human fancy that will predominate. So what about Corruptible by my Oxford colleague, Brian Class? Very readable, gets into why people seek power. Oh, I'd like and, to read. Do you know him? Yeah, we're, we're decent friends. And uh, you'll have to introduce me. We'll have to get him on the show. Yeah, I thought it's, it's really, really readable, well-written. I'm reading a book about games right now, Seven Games by Oliver Rodier. He writes about checkers, chess, poker, bridge, go. And that gets into this human need to uh, compete and analyze. Um, I think that people would find that really fun. I already mentioned Thomas Reed in Active Measures. Wow, what a tour de force. Yeah. Understanding the way in which Russian disinformation from 1950-ish until the present is literally at the core of why uh, Republicans and Democrats are against each other and why Germany has had a different foreign policy approach 
than its neighboring European states. Well, that's and I do think Cold War to blame every all the problems on in America on 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 Putin. But it sounds like an interesting book. What was the author's name again? Uh, Thomas Reed. Thomas Reed. He's from Southern Germany, from the Lake oh, Constant. Well, maybe we can get him on. Well, Jason Pack. Congratulations on the new book. Um, it is Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, a really relevant book in terms of a, a world tottering on the verge of perhaps a, a new terrible war. Uh, congratulations on the book, Jason, and we'll have you back on the show. Maybe uh, we'll get Kahindi Andrews and you can, uh, you can talk about the value, the relative value of hegemony. Thank you so much. Bring it on, Andrew. It was really fun talking with you. Thank you.